Adoniram Judson, born in Malden, Massachusetts in 1788, son of a clergyman and desired for himself to enter gospel ministry. 1810, Judson began to have a burden for the lost in foreign lands and believed he was to be a missionary. Two years later, he sailed to India with his bride, Anne. They would not stay in India, but were forced out and landed in Burma, now Myanmar. They were the first missionaries to Burma. As glorious as this is, it was not without much sorrow. To say that the Judsons were afflicted in every way, persecuted, perplexed, and given over to death for Jesus' sake would not be an overstatement. Judson lost multiple children to disease, lost Anne, lost his next wife, Sarah. One of the hardest things he faced was 21 months in prison, 11 of those months in what they called the death prison. One of the ways they would punish the prisoners was in the evening, they would take a bamboo stick and run it through the shackles of their feet and then hoist it up and hang them upside down with only their head and their shoulders on the ground, leaving them to try to sleep upside down with blood rushing to their head and in agony and pain. They could not sleep, and so they were left to their thoughts, left to stay there in their restless, wandering misery. Judson's biographer, Courtney Anderson, wrote of his first night. Adoniram, his hair and neck in filth, his arms sore from the cuts of cords, his ankles already chafed raw from the three pairs of heavy iron fetters on his elevated feet. He was alone with his thoughts. Judson had a lot of time to wrestle with the question of his suffering. Separated from his wife and one surviving child who had no one to take care of them. Separated from his fledgling ministry with no one to ensure its survival. Just Judson alone with his thoughts. How would you handle a trial like this? Would you question God? Would you believe that God would provide for you? Sustain you? How about the various trials you're facing right now in life? Maybe you're tempted to think, why me in the midst of what you're going through? Where is God in all of this? I want to ask, is your orientation that God will sustain you through whatever comes your way? Our passage in 1 Samuel tells us of when David faced serious trials and persecution and how God sustained him in those moments. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20 and grab the sermon outline in your bulletin. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath your chair, you'll find chapter 20 on page 243. Now we left off with Saul, who in his jealousy is pursuing David. He wants to kill David. In chapter 18, David has become loved by all and Saul cannot stand it. So in chapter 19, Saul starts to persecute him. David flees to the prophet Samuel in Ramah and Saul pursues him there. But God thwarts all of Saul's attempts and the story picks up at chapter 20, verse one. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? 
And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father to harm, that harm should come on you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers roughly? Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Verse one begins with David fleeing to Gibeah. Now why on earth is David going back to Gibeah? David just fled from Gibeah in chapter 19, verse 18, because Saul was trying to kill him. So why would he go back to Saul's hometown? Well, he's trying to get help from Saul's son. Verse 1 tells us that David wants to know what he's done to Saul and, he sh- and why he should be killed. Don- Jonathan is both Saul's closest confidant and David's. So if anyone can help set the record straight, it's Jonathan. It's also to see how serious Saul is. Keep in mind that one moment Saul is trying to kill David and the next he's wanting David to dine with him. This is an interesting guy. Chapter 19 verse 6 tells tells us that Saul changed his mind at least once about killing David. So Saul's the kind of guy you're always trying to get a read on. Because it's either dining with the king or attempted murder by spear. So the relationship's like the kind that you say, hey, how's it going? And if he roars back, you know to step away slowly, not making eye contact with the bear, because you don't know what's going to happen next. Saul could be having a bad day because of those tormenting spirits, or he really could be out to get David. And Jonathan's the best person to sound out his father. 
So in verses five through seven, Dave, David devises a plan to investigate Saul's persecution of David. The plans to have a plausible reason why David is not at the dinner party and Saul's reaction to David's absence will tell them everything they need to know. Now the tricky part is who will tell David if Saul is surely seeking to kill him? Jonathan at this point devises a strategy to keep David safe. Let's pick it back up in verse 19. Jonathan says, On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. So this first scene ends in verse 24 with David hiding in a field. He's waiting to hear if Saul is against David and needing to live as one exiled in order to keep his life. And the story unfolds just as David has planned. Starting in verse 25, Saul's inner circle gathers around the dinner table. On the first night, Saul sees David's seat empty and he thinks, oh, David's just unclean. Maybe he had to abstain from eating with us tonight. So there's no reaction the first night. But then David is absent for a second night and Saul now wants to know, where is David? Jonathan shares exactly what David had told him about needing leave to be at a ritual sacrifice back in Bethlehem. And in verse 30, we see Saul's response. Look with me. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? And to the shame of your mother's nakedness, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So we've seen A, persecution investigated, and now we learn in these verses, B, that exile is inevitable for David. Saul is adamantly against David. In fact, verse 33 helps us to see the shift in Saul. He's no longer some days good, some days bad. He's all against David. He now seeks to take the life of his own son by hurling a spear at Jonathan. And we learn that the motive for hating David, it's not for some sin that David did to Saul. No. We see in verse 31 Saul only cares about the legacy of his own kingdom. And his anger is kindled by the fact that his son has sided with David. That means that Jonathan has given up his path to the throne 
by siding with the one that God has anointed king in the place of Saul. It's, it's utter foolishness to Saul for Jonathan to give up his kingdom. But Jonathan recognizes the Lord's will and knows it's not foolish to give up what he cannot keep. Exile is now the will of God for David. Exile language is all over these chapters. Chapter 19, verse 10, David fled and escaped. Verse 18, David fled and escaped. Chapter 20, verse 1, David fled. And as we continue, we will see David keep fleeing like a fugitive and living like an exile, living, living like an enemy in exile, though he committed no sin against Saul and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now the takeaway we need to see here is that persecution and exile aren't simply for those guilty of sin. Here we see the innocent, innocent exiled, which means persecution doesn't equal divine displeasure. Granted, we see in scripture that those who are guilty of sin are exiled like Adam and Eve from the garden, like Israel from the promised land, but that's not the only reason exile occurs in the scriptures. Since there is an ongoing war between God's king and God's people and those who reject God's rule and reign, God's people are often treated like felons, like enemies who deserve exile. You and I may not have situations like David, but even in our various trials, we can begin to think differently about God in light of our circumstances to think that God is out to get us. But the truth of the matter is, our circumstances do not dictate whether God is for us or against us. In the trials we face, we want it said of us as it was said of Job in his trials. Do you remember what it was said of him? In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. As children of God, we want to see that God is for us in every circumstance, whether good or hard. We're going to see that in the rest of our passage. From 20, verse 35 on, we're going to see how God sustains David through his persecution and trials. And he's going to do it in four ways. You can see in your outline, sustained with covenant love, Sustained with provision, with protection, and with people. First, God sustains David with covenant love. What do I mean by that? Well, Jonathan is going to help David because of their covenanted, committed relationship. In chapter 19, we learn that David and Jonathan entered into a covenant with the Lord to be there for one another. Chapter 14, Jonathan showed himself to be one who trusts God and is devoted to God. And David did the same when he slayed Goliath. Now they have found mutual friendship in their mutual devotion to God. They found a fellowship that transcends family bonds. So this covenant relationship is part of what God is doing to sustain David. Through this covenant love on Jonathan's part, he chooses to help David escape rather than bring David to his father. 
after Saul exploded on Jonathan in verses, 30, in thir- verses 35 to 42, we learn Jonathan faithfully took the message of harm back to David. David is waiting in a field to see if death is a step closer to him. And Jonathan faithfully comes back to the field, specifically on the third day, and shoots the arrow for his servant to go get. And Jonathan, using coded language as he said he would do in verses 21 and 22, says, is not the arrow beyond you? Verse 38, and Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, quick, do not stay. Though the message is cryptic, it's clear. David is to flee. And Jonathan is helping him to do so. Now, before we see the other ways that God sustains David, I want you to see the significance of what Jonathan did. Jonathan just chose the anointed king over his own father. Not in a sinful way, for his father is rebelling against God. But nevertheless, Jonathan is leaving father and mother to serve the king that God has appointed. And it's no different for us who want to follow King Jesus. Luke 14, 26 reads, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Jonathan gives up the right to the throne as King Saul's son because he knows that God has anointed and appointed David to be the one true king. He gave up building up his own kingdom to be a servant in the kingdom of God. And the call is the same for all of us here today. We need to give up building our own kingdoms, our own careers and lifestyles, and follow Christ, whatever the cost. And we are to do so because serving any king and kingdom other than Christ and his kingdom will cost us everything as those kings and kingdoms crumble and fall away one day. Jim Elliott, famous missionary and martyr, wrote in his journal once, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When we give up our lives for Christ, that's when we truly gain life. And though we must walk through this world of woe, we know that God in his covenant love for us will sustain us who've given up their entire lives to gain eternal life. Let's look at how God continues to sustain David, picking up at verse one of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob a few miles from where he was just at. And he came to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling. And he said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. 
The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the, and the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. So we see in, so we see A, King David is sustained with covenant love. Here we see B, King David sustained with provisions, specifically bread in verse six and the sword of Goliath in verse nine. Now there's two things to address here. The first is the eating of the holy bread, which was only supposed to be used for worship and eaten by the priests. How can David and his men be permitted to eat bread, which seems like a violation of God's law? According to Leviticus 24, only anointed and consecrated priests can eat this bread. However, Ahimelech offers it to David because there's no other food for him to eat. To answer this question, I think it's helpful to hear Jesus' words on a similar scenario in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus and his disciples are ministering the gospel on the Sabbath, and they grow hungry. And so Jesus permits them to start plucking the heads of grain to fill their belly. But the Pharisees see what's going on, and they accuse Jesus of doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus appeals to this very text in 1 Samuel chapter 21 to give warrant to what he and the disciples are doing. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse three. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests. Jesus adds another example. Or have you not read in the law on how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And in verse eight, Jesus says, for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Here, Jesus teaches us that something that is more significant and greater takes precedent over the lesser matters of the law. Worship of God is essential on the Sabbath and therefore greater so the priests must work on the Sabbath, yet are guiltless. And that helps us to interpret what's going on with David. David isn't just anybody. He is the anointed and consecrated king, and his life and his people take precedent over the typical use of the holy bread. Something more significant is happening here, and therefore it takes precedent. So we see God sustains the true king and his people through the provision of the bread. Now, the second thing to wrestle with is David's words to Ahimelech. 
David is fleeing Saul, and yet he tells Ahimelech in verse 2 that he's on a secret mission from Saul. Maybe that lands on you wrongly. The first thing to notice is that if Ahimelech knowingly helps David, then he could be killed by Saul. So David is attempting to protect Ahimelech's life by giving him plausible deniability. He's actually for the life of Ahimelech. However, we know that in chapter 22, Saul will act like a madman and kill Ahimelech despite not knowing that David is fleeing. Also, to understand what David's doing, it's helpful to know that there is no peace in Israel at this time. There is war in Israel between the worldly king Saul and godly king David. And wartime calls for shrewd decisions. This isn't situational ethics. This is covenantal ethics. Saul is in every way showing himself to be a seed of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. And as the offspring of the evil one, he is seeking to destroy the offspring of Eve, the anointed one of God. God's people and covenant call for shrewd decision-making when it comes to the schemes of the devil. And David's shrewdness is on further display in the next section. Let's pick it back up in 21.10. Verse 10, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? God has sustained David through covenant love. He's provided for David in his poverty. And now see, God sustains David with protection. David isn't safe in Israel, so he flees King Saul to find refuge with King Achish, king of Gath. You know David is desperate if he's trying to find refuge in the city where just four chapters later he killed Goliath, the champion of the Philistines who lived in Gath. David is desperate. And so he shows up in Gath we aren't sure how David presents himself at first, but it's most likely that he shares that Saul's after him and he says, hey, because I'm at odds with Saul, I could be your sword for hire. I could be your mercenary. It was very common for mighty men of war back in the day to hire themselves out as mercenaries. In fact, Achish will see David as such later in chapter 27. But David's gun-for-hire plan backfires. Apparently, David killing tens of thousands of Philistines in the past is not lost on these Philistines in the present. Now David is in more trouble, and he does what any rational person would do in the moment. David pretends he's insane. 
like a madman who is scratching at the doors, clawing the walls. He has foaming saliva running down his mouth and all over himself. What is David doing here? Does he just have a flair for the dramatic and wants to see, hey, can I get away with this? Am I that good? No. David is desperate. And he acts shrewdly so that Achish will be unsuspecting of David, who is actually quite lethal. And it works. The plan works. David is brought to Achish, and all he sees is another madman. And apparently, the city of Gath already has enough problems in it. And so Achish doesn't see the need to bring someone else in who will cause him to pull out more of his hair. Now, I don't know about you, but this plan should not work. I mean, this is silly. He should not be able to get away with acting like a madman. Achish should be able to see right through what David's doing. Remember, he walked in acting normal. Now he's acting like a madman. uh, Achish should be able to see through this and kill his Israelite enemy. But he can't. He doesn't. Why? Because someone greater is fighting David's battles. Someone else is sustaining David in this moment. One who can put enemy armies to confusion and even blind the eyes of a king so that God's anointed can escape. Psalm 34 in its superscription tells us that David wrote Psalm 34 after his time in Gath right here. And it helps us to see how David viewed that moment as someone else delivering and protecting him. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Oh, brothers and sisters. May we be like David, as it says in verse 8 of chapter of Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Though David is hard-pressed on every side, both from his own people and from his enemies, he's not crushed. David embraced his exilic identity. And when tribulation and persecution arose on account, on account of God's word, he did not immediately wither and fall away. No, David trusted God to sustain him. Sustained with covenant love, sustained with provision and protection. Now we're going to look at the fourth way God sustains King David, which is the climax of this section. D, sustained with people and profit. Follow along as I read our final verses. Chapter 22, verse 1 through 5. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone, everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. 
And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Verse 1 tells us David escaped Achish and he fled to the cave of Adullam, which commentators say would be about 12 miles east of Gath. And it's somewhat in no man's land between the Philistines and Israel. No one really knows who that area belongs to. And it's also helpful to know that the ancient, in the ancient world, caves are a picture of death. In David's day, caves are naturally occurring tombs that people would bury their dead within. So David hiding out in a cave would be like someone today hiding out in a cemetery. In many ways, this is a depressing picture. David's not safe at home. He's not safe with his enemies. The place of the dead is all that he has. But death doesn't get the last word. David serves a God who takes what is meant for evil and he means it for good. We don't know how long David was hiding there alone with his small company of soldiers. But what we do know is that when his parents and the people of Israel hear where David is, they come to him. Remember that in chapter 18, verse 16, the people of Israel loved David. So when they hear that he is exiled and where he's hiding out, the people come to him. Now, who exactly are these people? It says they're distressed, they're in debt. Everyone who's bittered in soul, gathered to him. Well, they're the ones who are discontented with Saul and his reign over them. They are disillusioned with the king they wanted and his oppressive nature. And now they're gathering to the king they now see they've needed. The king that God has appointed, who will actually meet their needs and who cares deeply for them. A king who we learned in chapter 17, verse 34, when he was fighting Goliath, he wouldn't even let one lamb be taken by a lion or bear, but would risk his life to strike down the oppressive predator. That's the kind of king that they're coming out to. This is the kind of people. It says over 400 men came out to David for him to be their commander and king. Over 400 people disillusioned with the world and the king they thought would satisfy them who are now choosing to identify with and serve an exiled king. Now it would be easy for Dave, David to think in a cave of death that God was against him but we see that God is for him because he's still on his feet. Yes, he's afflicted, but he's not crushed. Perplexed at the persecution of Saul, but he's not driven to despair. Yes, David is living in a place of death, but at this moment, an aroma of life is going out from the cave of Adullam. God has and is sustaining David. What an incredible Example of God sustaining his king and people. But there's a problem. You and I cannot go out to the cave of Adullam and find refuge in King David. They all died, and what we need most isn't in that cave any longer. 
David could never meet our greatest needs. We need the greater king to whom David pointed. We need King Jesus who was exiled yet sustained by the Father. We learn in the New Testament that Christ Jesus is our exiled king. After Christ was born, Matthew's gospel teaches us that King Herod in the first century tried to kill Jesus. Jesus fled to Egypt, came back to the land of Israel only to hide out in nowhere Nazareth. John 1.11 says he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Throughout his preaching ministry, he told those who wanted to follow him, even fox, foxes have holes as homes, but the son of man is homeless and has nowhere to lay his head. King Jesus lived in exile, but God sustained his life, sustained with covenant love. Mark 1.11 tells us that the father spoke audibly to Jesus at his baptism, and he said to him, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In moments of hostility and persecution, like John 8, Jesus would say that the Father is with him, that the Father hasn't left him alone. He leaned on that covenant love. During his temptation in the wilderness, God sustained him and provided for Jesus, though he was out without the provision of bread. Matthew 11 says the angels came and they ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. God protected Jesus during the many times the Jewish leaders would try to kill him. He would miraculously get away, just like David, from King Achish. In places like John 7, 30, they sought to arrest Jesus, but the text says, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Like David, Jesus faced further exile among the dead. When he was nailed to the cross in the place of sinners, this time, Jesus wasn't only exiled by men, but he's exiled by God. Mark 15, 34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, Jesus was innocent and exiled for the sins of those he came to save. Forsaken by God as he crushed him on the cross. A king not exiled for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And yet in all of this, Jesus never questioned God's love for him. Never doubted that God would sustain him, though the cup he was made to drink was far bitter than any other. Though King Jesus was exiled, 1 Peter 2.23 tells us he was sustained by trusting God. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Though Jesus had to face death, he trusted the Father who was able to save him from death having the last word. Yes, Jesus was exiled on the cross, but the resurrection was his future. The father in his great love for his son would not let his holy one see corruption. Just like David on the third day, Jesus passed through death and he was raised because death was, it was impossible for death to hold him down. The innocent and exiled one, sustained by God and now victorious king over 
Oh. And now people are coming to him. People are coming out to the one outside the camp. He is drawing all of humanity to himself. Those disillusioned with the world, they thought they wanted. The leader that that were once right in their own sight. Those distressed by their sin. Those disillusioned and discontented with what they thought they needed and wanted. What they thought would satisfy them. And realize what God has provided for them in King Jesus that he is worth leaving everything behind to go outside the camp to follow after him. That he is a king far more than all we could ever thought of or asked for. Maybe you're here this morning and you have become disillusioned with the world, with its leaders, disillusioned with its promises, even discontented with what you thought would satisfy your deepest longings. Distressed as a result of your own sin. Realizing that being the master of your fate and the captain of your soul is not all it's cracked up to be. And that living without God and without hope in this world sucks. I want to say to you that there is a king who will receive you. He receives the distressed, the disillusioned, the discontented with sin in this world. He is King Jesus, the one who died for sinners of every kind and longs for your bitter and distressed soul to find hope and peace in his kingdom. If you are without Christ this morning, I plead with you to come to the king right now, right now, and be gathered to those who've seen, who've tasted that the Lord is good. King Jesus was exiled, yet he was sustained. Now, how about those who are already the king's people? How do we have an orientation that God will sustain us through whatever comes our way? I believe this passage calls us to embrace the identity of an exile. King David was exiled and his people identified with him. And it's the same for King Jesus' people. In Peter's first letter, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to Christians as elect exiles. The Apostle Paul taught followers of Christ in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Would you say that you're an exile for Christ? That you've identified with an exiled king? And as exiles in this world, we must trust God to sustain us through whatever he ordains for our lives. David was sustained through exile. Jesus was sustained through crucifixion. The question is, are you going to entrust yourself to God? Whatever crucible he has ordained for you. 
Are you going to cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you? Now I know that most of us here aren't being persecuted like David. Some of you are, but most of us are not. However, we are facing various trials in life and every trial we face can be an occasion to think differently about God so the application is still the same. To entrust ourselves to God, trusting that he will sustain you in what way is best for your soul. To do anything else but trust God would be like the seed of the third soil in Jesus' parable of the soil that withers in the midst of trials and persecution. 1 Peter 4.19 tells us, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. But I want you to remember, dear believer, it's not just blind trust in a cold, detached deity. You are entrusting yourself to God, knowing that he will sustain you through all things with a covenant, steadfast love. God loves you. Romans 1.7 calls believers loved by God. Isaiah 54.10 tells us that though the mountains and hills be removed, God's steadfast love shall not depart from us. We're loved, even when it doesn't look like it. We never have to question God. For God isn't like Saul, happy one day and hurling spears at us the next. That's not God towards us. No, he's for you, dear believer. God went to the extent of giving up his son for us while we were still yet sinners. If he was for us then, is he not for you now? He is working all things together for your good, for your salvation. Though we are prone to think differently about God in light of our circumstances, as believers, we are to think differently about our circumstances in light of God. He is sustaining us with love, provision, and protection. And though our outer man may waste away through persecution and trials, as those who've entrusted themselves to Christ, our inner being is being renewed each day. God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, which should make our afflictions seem momentary and light. I love the song, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. One of my favorite lines is, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we've endured. Knowing that the final restoration and redemption of all things will be the better for the trials we've faced, let's be those who say with their lips and their hearts, why me less and less? And who say, thy will be done more and more. Adoniram Judson spent those 21 months suffering terribly in prison. He could have questioned God. He could have withered and fallen away from the faith, but he didn't. God sustained Judson with covenant love. Judson was sustained through the provisions of his dear but near-death wife, God sustained him with protection from disease and death when so many died around him. 
And Judson would go on to be released from prison and continue the work of ministry. Judson was used by by God to save many souls in Burma, to train other missionaries, and to translate the Bible into Burmese, which is still being used today. Judson crossed the great horizon and came to the golden shore of redemption in 1850. Judson, on the topic of trials, said, While therefore your tears flow, let a due portion be tears of joy. Yet take the bitter cup with both hands. You will soon learn a secret, that there is sweetness at the bottom. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, may we be thoroughly convinced that in the midst of all our trials, the persecution we face as those who've identified with an exiled king, that there is sweetness at the bottom. Father, please help us to fight every lie that you're like Saul, happy for us one moment, yet throwing spears at us the next. God, you are anything but that. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You are for your people, and you will love us to the end. You will bring us through everything, namely death to the golden shore of redemption. Let us believe you. Let us entrust ourselves to you. Let us live for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.